Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. This is an epiphany episode of The Pillar Podcast in that Ed and I, oh, I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And this is an epiphany episode of The Pillar Podcast in that Ed and I are in Rome, Italy, uh, where the epiphany is celebrated on January the 6th, whenever that takes place in the week rather than uh, on the Sunday thereafter, which is how it is celebrated in the United States. So this is, in short, an epiphany episode in which Ed and I hope to bring you some gold. How you doing, man? Uh, I'm I'm doing all right. I'm Good. doing all right. I I'm I'm a little in mourning. Yeah, I'm a lot in mourning. Yeah, I mean this this was supposed to be the night that my wife and I had our annual twelfth night party. <laughs> oh my and gosh, I that you know, is I was really looking man. forward that to it. Reverend, that is a reverend. It's not a reverend. It's you asked me how I'm feeling. That's how I'm feeling. I we we my wife and I have an annual twelfth night party. Mm-hmm. I look forward to it every year, but you didn't have it last year. No, but that was because people were still being a bit ronish about the whole thing. Mm. Um, and some great people were going to come. I was only halfway through inviting the people that I wanted to invite when we discovered we were coming to Rome. So I'm, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little sad, JD. I mean, so I'm what not- you are doing right now, Ed, is you are concealing your real feelings, emotions, and experience. You are in mourning, as am I, but we're both in mourning actually for the death of Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, which we have not talked about on the show previously, and you are not comfortable being that open, candid, or vulnerable uh, with me, let alone on the podcast. And so you're you're sort of playing this sort of dis- disaffected guy who is in mourning because he couldn't have his 12th night party. But in fact, you, like me, are probably in mourning for the death of Pope Benedict Sixteenth, And that is what we're going to talk about here on the show, because we are here in Rome to cover the mourning and funeral of Pope Benedict Sixteenth. And in order to do that, I do think we should probably talk a little bit about our own experiences of Benedict Sixteenth, our own views on the subject, and our own real views and, dare I say, feelings about the matter. And I know that's difficult for you, but it seems to me to be appropriate to the moment. Okay, that's probably true. It is certainly true that you're right that I don't like discussing feelings um, of a sincere nature. I I actually I, I wrote something about this, about how I feel about Benedict Sixteenth in my in my newsletter this morning. And... The reason I did that was more or less because you inadvertently goaded me into it by making a comment about how I seemed basically to be bored and disaffected with the entire thing uh, of being here in Rome and and going to the funeral. No, what I did was ask you if you were okay. I didn't say, hey, you seem bored. I said, hey, are you okay? Because I'm concerned about you and I want to make sure you're okay and I care about you, believe it or not. And so I asked you if you were okay. (laughs) And you did write about that in your newsletter, but let's just be straightforward about it. I mean, we're having experiences now. Yeah. Yes, yes. I, I'm feeling emotions, JD, and I, I, I don't do that often, and um, I, I like talking about it even less often. Um, but no, it's been a thing. Uh, the death of Pope Benedict the Sixteenth and his funeral yesterday was. Um, I, I found it hard to treat it as a dispassionate sort of journalistic endeavor. I, I, I we were there, and there were a couple of moments where I. You know, we were perched up on the top of the colonnade and everything, looking down over St. Peter's Square and everything. And there were there were more than a few moments where I basically wanted to walk away. I, you know, didn't want to watch anymore. I wanted to think about stuff. I was I, I was having an emotional moment from time to time, JD, and it's not easy for me to say out loud, but I was, and there it is. So you've you've wrung that out of me. I hope you're happy. I was too, Ed, because Benedict the Sixteenth was a person who was really meaningful to me in, in faith. I 
Um, of course, um, as a young person, I, I didn't really, ser- you know, I was baptized as a Catholic, as you know, but I was mostly raised in a Protestant evangelical church in New Jersey, where I'm from. And, um, and when I started practicing the faith, it wasn't because of Pope John Paul II, or even because I had any awareness of who the Pope was or what he did or uh, anything of that nature. I didn't really have an ecclesial understanding at all. But um, early in my formation as a Catholic, I was moved, as so many people were, by uh, John Paul II, and um, both intellectually but also kind of spiritually and personally impressed by who he was and the kind of presence he had and the kind of Christian magnitude that he has. John Paul II, I think it's fair to say, was among the most influential people in my life. But that's no less true of Benedict the Sixteenth, whose um, whose work I encountered before I encountered him as Pope, because I had read a fair amount of of, uh, of his work when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, and um, I, I hope, I really hope, was formed intellectually by Benedict the Sixteenth. I say that um, I've said that a few times this week because I mean it. I really, I hope that my worldview is a Ratzingerian worldview. I hope that I see the world and the Church through the lens of the theology of. Uh, of, of Benedict the Sixteenth of Cardinal Ratzinger, who put so central to his theological work the person of Jesus Christ, and who put so central to his theological work um, God's revelation in sacred scripture, and um, and who who through that had an anthropology I think that began with creation, with the fall, and was oriented towards redemption, salvation kenosis, holiness, and, um, and, and if, if you will, participation in the divine life. Um, I hope that I ha- have inculcated from having read Benedict and been influenced by him the kind of um, vision of history, humanity, uh, and the faith itself in which Jesus Christ play- is, is absolutely central and plays an absolutely central role because um, that was such an influential sort of intellectual experience for me as a sort of newly practicing Catholic reading Ratzinger and then um, seeing him and experiencing him as Pope was was a deeply sort of influential spiritual experience for me. And, you know, one of the things that is that I, I hope I say this correctly, but I think John Paul II sort of prepared me um, to appreciate Benedict XVI. And probably it's just sort of the age I was when Ratzinger became Pope and these kinds of things. But I think John Paul II, I think, was the charismatic figure in my life. Not that, again, not that sort of I became, I started practicing Catholicism because of John Paul II, but um, at the time in which I was, relatively speaking, a neophyte, John Paul II was the instrumental figure in my life and the sort of universal call to holiness, his encouragement to have the courage to pursue holiness and these kinds of things, his enthusiasm, his own, the, the witness of his suffering. Those kinds of things were so influential in my life in, in the sort of early practice of the faith. It was Benedict, I think, who drew me deeper into a sense of the church's tradition, the church's history, the life of the church and its meaning, and the way that that was expressed in the way the church reads scripture and the way that the church thinks theologically, and, and, and really in the way that the church worships. It was Benedict, I think, who drew me deeper into an understanding of the way the church worships and the meaning of worship and what it means that effectively we are worshiping creatures, um, you know, that that we we're made for worship and we understand ourselves in the context of, um, of, of sacred worship is most especially in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And it was Benedict, I think, who sort of drew me much deeper into that um, history and the richness sort of of Catholic life and thought. And, you know, part of the way that I think he did that was that um, 
Benedict was so unassuming, you know, that you know, John Paul projected himself, and I don't want to juxtapose them in a way that seems to compare them unfavorably, because both of them, I think, have been so influential in my own spiritual life. But John Paul, you know, uh, preached, proclaimed the kingdom with an invitation, uh, you know, um, do not be afraid, right? I mean, Put just, out into the deep. That's exactly right. Duke and Aldum. Benedict then, I think, in his own meekness and the sort of um, witness of his interior life, manifested what that depth looked like intellectually, spiritually, uh, and, and personally in a way that was sort of like, oh, I see what this person has. And clearly they have, they're living the life of grace in a way that is compelling. And I want to understand what that is and how to get it. I understand exactly what you're saying. My experience was, I don't want to say it was different. I, it was different, but I don't, I, I saw things from a different angle, which was this. I, my, I mean, the church of JP2, the pontificate of JP2, was the church I grew up in. It's what I knew that, you know, the first papal encyclicals I read were JP2's great works. That's how I, I came to have any kind of intellectual engagement with the faith. And I, I think I was deeply formed by that. And, and I remain deeply grateful and marked by that. My experience of Benedict was, and it, it's a counterintuitive one, I think, because everyone says, and they're entirely right to say that Benedict was this great intellectual, that he was a towering theologian that, um, you know, I, we were at, we were at the funeral yesterday and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. And there were these, you know, spontaneous cries from the crowd of Santo Subito and, you know, that, that Benedict should be made a saint and all of these things. And that, that'll be what it is. I, you know, my own, my own view of causes of sainthood and sanctity, um, is rooted in the simple reality, which is, it's not about what a person does on earth that advances their cause for sainthood. It's about whether or not the church can know for certain that they are alive in heaven. So I, I tend to push those things to one side and say, I understand the sentiment, but it's not the point. Um, but I think there is a much stronger call or a much stronger prediction that Benedict will one day, one day be acknowledged as a doctor of the church, such as his intellectual contribution to the theological heritage um, of the church. But for me, my experience of Benedict was not intellectual that I don't think Benedict, particularly, at least not that I'm aware of, left a particularly strong intellectual mark on me, that he didn't mark an intellectual development in my faith, that that's not how I experienced him, which isn't to say that wasn't, you know, his great legacy. I'm sure it is, and I'm sure it will be. But for me, my experience of him was something other, which is JP2 I always encountered as the Pope in Rome through his writings as the guy, even in his older and more infirm years, at World Youth Days and coming to Rome and seeing him speak and things like that, I, I encountered him with a great sense of shock and awe that JP2 was this enormous, larger-than-life figure. Yeah, bigger, an icon. I mean, really, truly b bigger than life in every single way. Yeah, he was all of that. And that's very much how I experienced him. Benedict, I, I experienced as, as a very comforting, reassuring grandfather figure. That I, My experience of Benedict as Pope, and even in his writings as Joseph Ratzinger, I, I encountered as a as a grandfatherly figure, as a as a reassuring figure, that uh, this is something I wrote about today, that you know, if my entire understanding of the theology of Benedict is is I think his great work, which is God is love, Deus Caritas est. That this is it's an easy three words to say, but to have any kind of confidence in them, to have any kind of faith in them, is life changing, in a in a 
absolutely literal way that you can appreciate theology, you can appreciate liturgy, you can appreciate the entire concept of worship in a in a very different way if you don't have firm in your mind and in your heart the idea that God is love. And for me, this was the great thing about Benedict and his theology and his writings and his teachings, but also just his pastoral ministry, was that for me, I had always understood there was a kind of tension between the idea of divine worship, properly speaking, not necessarily the ins and outs of liturgy. And, you know, you face this way, you face that way, you use this language, you use this right, whatever. But the entire concept of divine worship, of worshiping this thing that we call God, this this huge, unknowable, omniscient, omnipotent, eternal being, and having a personal relationship with them, that I always perceived those things wrongly, but in a natural way to be intention, that you could have a personal relationship with this person called Jesus Christ, and he was in some way through the mystery of the Trinity truly God. But in the act of divine worship, there was this whole other intimidating presence that was the fullness of the Godhead. And Benedict was the one who broke down that tension for me and and made it clear to me that, no, divine worship and the knowledge of a truly loving father are not intention. They are, they are a dialogue. They are something that you could be absolutely comfortable with. And for me, I think the most beautiful thing about Benedict's death um, was, you know, his reported last words. You know, his reported last words were, Lord, I love you that these are the words of a man with a kind of childlike trust in the love of God the Father. And I don't know if I have that, but certainly that is the thing I want most in my life. That is the thing I want most for myself. You know, I, um, my wife and I have at various points um, done premarital preparation, you know, pre cana stuff. Um, and, and one of the metaphors I always employ when talking about the necessity of having a real relationship with God, of having a real faith, uh, is that it imparts you that to know that you are loved by God gives you the freedom to love the other. And I always compare, I compare it now to the experience of having a daughter, which we've had for just over a year now. And before that, I would experience that to my, my having seen young nieces and nephews, and, you know, my, my youngest brother and sister when they were, when they were infants and I was more or less an adult, is that a, a baby being held by its parents will often be incredibly friendly, engaged, happy, extroverted with any stranger that they see. But if the stranger picks them up, they freak out. And that this is the experience of, I think, faith, is if you know that God loves you first, if you have a real encounter with Jesus Christ, if you have a real encounter with the love of God the Father, you are this child that is held and this frees you to love the other with a, a sort of unconditional, not trust, but just an indifference to, you know, what might happen. It's I, I'm safe because I am loved by this much larger presence that is the guarantee of all of my security, all of the things that I need. And so if I have that, if, I, if I'm rooted in that, then I'm free to love the other. And this is in the, in the concept of a marriage course, this is what we always say to couples. What I always say to couples is if you have a true experience of the love of God, then you are truly free to love your spouse, regardless of your sins, their sins, the difficulties you might have in their relationship and everything else. And it was Benedict who taught me that. And it wasn't an intellectual encounter. Like, I, I am not a theologian. I've studied theology. I have degrees in theology, whatever, but I don't consider myself a theologian. And the reason I didn't pursue a doctorate in theology is because I, 
you could say I don't consider myself intellectually up to the task. I found it a difficult study. I found it a hard discipline to pursue. I preferred the rude mechanics of canon law. Yeah, the uh, the tangibility of it. I, I yes. would say the same thing. I've often uh, there are many reasons why I studied canon law, but at the end of the day, I I, I think I felt the same that I uh, lacked the kind of intellectual acumen that seemed to be available to the, the theologians to whom I respect the most. Right, and and for me, that was my great encounter with the the thought, the teaching of Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, was not great theological theory or explanation. It was the simplicity of his trust in the reality of the divine love. That that's, that's his great lasting legacy in my life. I mean, also the fact that I am a canon lawyer is also, and I, I wrote about this today, and I think I've told the story in the podcast before, but I mean, it is quite literally because of Pope Benedict that I ended up studying canon law, that I was working in British politics at the time of his state visit to the UK in 2010, that I was able to attend his address to the Joint Houses of Parliament with my wife. We, we ended up with not front row seats, but quite near front row seats. And he gave this really very short oration, which, you know, if you go back and read the text, it's very good. It's very solid. It's very Benedict. But it's not, you know, it's not breaking new ground. It's, you know, it's not, it's not one of his great works. It's yeah, not it's one of the Regensburg Address. Yeah, exactly. It, it doesn't break new intellectual or theological ground. It doesn't, you know, draw out some new synthesis between different strains of thought or anything like that. It's a fairly simple, you, you might say, beginner's guide to the thought about faith in the public square and theology and secular mentality and politics and how faith and reason interrelate and all these things. But for me as a whatever I was then, 26, 27-year-old, it had a very, very deep impact on my life because I was living, I mean, I wasn't living outside of the church by any stretch of the imagination. I had a very active life in the faith. I was very active in my parish. My faith was the center of my out-of-office life. And I tried on the basis of my experience of the faith in the parish and what I understood to be the Christian mandate to make disciples of all nations, to bring my faith into the workplace and to my friends at work as much as I could. But it was Benedict's visit in this address which planted in me a question which grew into an understanding that I was living a a kind of compromise with a with a secularist political agenda that I was in fact not compromising with I was just becoming complicit with and that set me on the road to thinking well I need to find another job I need to find another career I had in my mind that you know I I'd done graduate and postgraduate studies in theology I thought maybe I'll go back and do more theology and as we just talked about it, I decided that wasn't for me. But that was how I came across the idea of and came to study canon law, which quite literally put me on the path to where we ended up this week, which is us in Rome covering the funeral of Pope Benedict, that if Benedict hadn't physically come to my office in 2010, I wouldn't have been in Rome attending his funeral for work mm -hmm. in 2023. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I think um, I, I love that you share that. I, I think I was thinking while you were talking, one of the things, uh, you know, sort of not intellectually, but as a model um, with Benedict XVI was uh, a lot was made. And it's true that um, in John Paul II's later years, I, I don't want to seem to keep comparing them, but I, I, I do naturally. Do you find that you do that? You sort of naturally. I don't compare them. I, do, I, 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 I can't separate them. Yeah, that's right. I don't. I, they're a continuation. They're very much two sides of the same coin for me that. 
JP2 was the, and I and I think this is and this is something you've talked about before and I agree with you entirely which was Benedict was in many ways a reaction to the papacy of JP2 and I don't think he was re- reacting to the person of JP2 but he was living the Petrine ministry in his own way which was very very different and I think ultimately led to his resignation which I've argued is his most important legacy whether whether anyone else or my, even myself like that about him I, I think that is his, his resignation yes. is his most important legacy Sorry, what did I say? no no I just want to make clear because you wrote a piece last week in which you said Pope Francis is Benedict's most important legacy yeah but I don't think you can separate the act of his but resignation really, from Pope Francis uh, at the heart of that is that his resignation is the sort of defining yeah, and, but his resignation is and the timing the of his resignation and the manner of it is inseparable from the the pontificate of Pope Francis that had he resigned even as much as a week later than he did, I don't think we would have had Pope Francis. I think that you you cannot possibly separate the resignation of Benedict XVI from the election of Pope Francis. I think they're they're utterly bound up together. Um, but Benedict, you you've talked before about the the sort of phenomena of the imperial personal papacy. I have yeah. Um, that in modern times it is particularly under JB two and also under Francis very much personality driven that the the man makes the office his own rather than the man disappearing into the office mm-hmm. that's right and benedict was the opposite of that and i don't think it was intentional in his part i think it was dispositional i think that was just a function of who he was that he was very uncomfortable being pope joseph ratzinger the great personality that that's not who he could be that he wanted in a certain way to be um, a steward of the mysteries among the stewards of the mysteries. He he was the kind of pope who would use the royal we, not out of pomposity, but out of... Which I don't think he actually did, but no, he didn't, of, but that I'm, sort of thing. Yeah, that sort the of red thing. shoes and the ermine caps and all of the things which Benedict did to sort of pick back up some of the signs of the papacy, which been, had been over the over time sort of fallen into disuse, especially since the Second Vatican Council, he picked back up. And I do think a great deal of that was to say, I this is not me, this is... right. The symbol. This it was Joseph Ratzinger disappearing into the office right. of Pope mm-hmm. Benedict. Yeah, that's and, I, right. and I, again, I think that was dispositional. I don't think that was him sort of making a conscious decision of I'm going to show you an alternative way of being Pope. I, I, I think that was just a function of who he was in his own character, and I think ultimately contributed to his resignation. Um, but no, to to what we were, to how we got onto this, I, I don't view, I don't compare Benedict and JP two. Because I view them as inextricably linked. I don't think it's possible that you have the pontificate of JP2 without Joseph Ratzinger there as the sort of theological thought behind much of what John Paul did and taught and said and wrote. I don't think you get very taught to splendor. I don't think you get many of the great writings of JP2 if you don't have Benedict contributing. I think that, you know, one, one wrote the music, one wrote the lyrics, if you like. And and I think he was an essential collaborator with JP two, and I think that you can you can see from his homily at John Paul II's funeral, which I think a lot of people believe, and I I do myself, probably contributed substantially to his election as Pope. But I think that was very much his tribute, not just to a friend, to a collaborator, but also his entire interpretation of what he had received from the leadership right, of JP two. Yeah, yeah. I I, I want to say so. The, I want to say something about that about the way in which he sort of felt um, the office became bigger than him because I I think we saw if you remember during the, the last years of the John Paul II papacy there was so much talk about the way in which the Pope suffering uh, was on visible display that the Pope was a witness to 
He was on the cross. Yeah, he was on the cross. That he, you know, Pope John Paul II in the last years of his life suffered from Parkinson's disease, which had progressively affected him more and more. And I mean, the frustration on his his entire body when he was unable to speak at some of his later Angelus addresses was visible. Like that's was, right. Because he was with, visibly furious that he couldn't get the words out. Because his mind was not, you know, there's no reason to think that his mind was diminished, but his body wouldn't do what he wanted it to do. And he endured that suffering beautifully. And, John, you know, of course, John Paul II's papacy was probably bookmarked by suffering because his first encyclical, Salvifici Dolores, was effectively a, a, a reflection on suffering. And then um, <laughs> and then the last years of his papacy were a, a visible witness to that, a sort of incarnation of Salvifici Dolores. So John Paul II, we, there was so much conversation about the way in which he catechized by being um, in those last years that he witnessed to, that in a culture of death, he witnessed to the dignity of the human person, to um, the uh, the the ineffability of, of of the human person, the way in which um, uh, suffering can have me, especially the way in which suffering can have meaning when we unite it to the cross. I mean, I don't think you can say today as a contemporary Catholic offered up without thinking about John Paul II offering it up. So we had this witness of uh, of suffering, but also of a perception, a sort of you would judge if you were sort of judging in a utilitarian way you would assess that in those later years, John Paul II was inadequate to the task in some ways, right? A perception of inadequacy for the job which had been entrusted to him and a way in which he he witnessed, uh, no, um, this suffering for and from the heart of the church is meaningful, has spiritual significance and catechetical significance and all these things. And And we talked a lot about that, but I don't think we talked about the way in which Benedict exhibited um, something, and, and there's a humility, right, to suffering in a public way, to, to being seen to be um, inadequate and to the task or people might judge you that way in a utilitarian ethos and, and being seen to be weak in your body, right? Benedict exhibited suffering, I think, weakness, uh, inadequacy, and therefore radical reliance on the Lord in a different way in that he followed this icon, right, who is both iconic in his vitality and then iconic in his suffering. And he was not the sort of figure who 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 could occupy a space as an icon Benedict the 16th. I mean there are people who have sort of cardinal ratzinger fan club mugs and really like that he wore red shoes and these kinds of galeros and these kinds of things. But Benedict was not dispositionally inclined or capable of being a global icon and yet that's what he followed. And so there was always I think this way in which um here is a person who is not the kind of magnetic dynamic, extraordinary personality of the one who came before him. And yet he is embracing this vocation, this call by God to occupy the the office of the papacy in the fullness of his own personality as he actually is and in connection to what the office is and and, and in tradition and all those things. There was this sense, I think, a witness to a a, a reliance and trust in, in God's providence, like um, I'm not that. I revered. I revered John Paul II. I admired him. I esteemed him. I'm not that, and yet now I'm called to occupy this office, and so I'll do it as as the person who I am, which I think attests to that same kind of actual vulnerability, uh, the same kind of um, contradiction, a, a sign of contradiction to the utilitarian ethos, which were technocratic ethos, which would say no, we should only elect as pope the person who is the most dynamic, or the person who's the most photogenic, or the person who's kind of capable of being the best sort of TED talk global icon of Catholicism, um, that person, whoever he might have been in 2005, wasn't elected to the papacy, Benedict XVI was, and he 
accepted that, and he was very, very clear from the very beginning that he was occupying the chair of Peter only and solely and wholly and entirely um, by God's grace and with the sort of suffering that came from becoming the visible sign of unity for the church which he loved. And and, and I think we, we shouldn't ignore the profundity of that of that witness. Now, please go ahead. No, I say, okay, so how do you... You're with, going where I'm going. Yeah, with all of that being said, how do you how do you perceive his resignation? Yeah, I... Because I, I, I hated it. Candidly. Yeah, I think that's the question to ask. I don't... I, I first have to check myself and say, I don't know enough about why... I mean, look, I wish we did. Look, we're the pillar, right? I mean, I wish... I want to get the story. I want to get the story of why the Pope resigned. I want not to get... You know, Archbishop Gansfein has been saying, oh, there's more going on behind the scenes and this kind of thing. I want us to be able to say, this is why Benedict resigned, because I like answering questions and I like deep diving into things and I like getting stuff. You know, people say, well, there there were both the external factors of various kinds of um, dysfunction in the Curia, which needed reform, which he felt incapable of reforming. And at the same time, Benedict had fallen on a trip to Mexico six months before and was an ailing and ill health. And Clearly um, not that ill of health. Well, I mean, not I mean, not at death's door, but in, in sort of his... Well, he lived for 10 years. <laughs> with diminished capacity is what I mean, right? Or had a perception, perhaps even a, a, a psychological perception of diminished capacity. I, I I don't want to make an assessment of it because of what, you know, whether... You're saying you're disappointed. I don't want to make an assessment of whether he should or shouldn't. No, no, no. I'm not asking like for your assessment of it. I'm saying how... How, how do you think? How feel? did it make me feel? Yeah, how did it make you feel? <laughs> Look, you may be right on this thing. I, you, you say it. How do you? How did it make you feel? I mean, I, I, look, I, I cards on the table. I, I also don't know why he resigned. I mean, you know, everyone who's been close to him has been perfectly clear right the way along the line for the last ten years that Benedict made this decision out of prayer. That he sincerely felt that was what the Lord not only wanted of him but asked of him. Right. And I'm not. I am not now, and I haven't ever second-guessed the sincerity of that. I'm prepared to take someone of someone with, as I just said, a, a deeply personal relationship with Christ at His word when He says, "This is what I feel called to do." I, you know, if anyone would know, I would hope it would be Him. It didn't mean I liked it. Yeah, I I wished then that Benedict had not resigned. That doesn't mean that I'm right, right? I mean, maybe it was genuinely the right thing for the church but i wished when he announced it let's see that was 2013 mm-hmm. um a lot had changed for me in 2013 uh, on a personal level um my i uh i had uh two children in two years my longtime boss i still work in diocesan administration my longtime boss had just been transferred in the course of that we we're getting a new bishop uh, a lot i mean you know and so i was sort of not sure uh, a lot had changed, and I think for me it came at the end of a period of, like, a lot of change, and now this person who had been the Pope is resigning, and uh, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know sort of how to, con- how to conceive it. Yeah, I think it was, uh, I think, and and the Pope as a principle of unity, I, I felt like I understood, I, honestly, Ed, I, I felt like I understood what it was to be a Catholic, and um, and and I, I mean that intellectually. I felt like Benedict helped me to understand what it was to read the Second Vatican Council and a hermeneutic of continuity with what had come before it, and sort of understanding sort of the the sort of exegetical key to the documents themselves, and therefore had given me a vision for what it meant to understand the role and nature of the Church in the modern world. 
I, I won't say, you know, it's not like I thought Benedict resigned. I don't know those things. I, I did not anticipate that there would be as many challenges in the life of the church in the years thereafter, the 10 years thereafter that there have been, and that things which I thought were relatively settled are not, right? So so I do think there is much more debate and uncertainty. There's much more debate and uncertainty about how to read the Second Vatican Council, what it means, and what that means for the life of the church in the world now than there was 10 years ago, right? And I, I didn't anticipate that. I couldn't have anticipated that because some things which I thought were like, okay, these things were debated in the 80s, and I'm fortunate because I wasn't, you know, as a kid, I wasn't paying attention. Now they're sort of being debated again. I, I don't think any of us could have anticipated that. So I don't think I was like unsettled by it, like, wow, now everything could change, because many things that in a certain way have come back up for debate, it didn't occur to me that they could come back up for debate. And I sort of expected, um, okay, well, there will be a new pope, and he'll, he'll be in in continuity. And there have been, look, there have been things that have been uh, very different in the life of the church since then. And, and, um, and things which I think have been difficult for a lot of Catholics since then. And part of that is good, right? I mean, okay, so part of that is good. Uh, the Holy Father brings challenges to the life of the church, which are important. And um, I think honestly applies, like Laudato Si, I think honestly applies uh, Centissimus Honors, John Paul II's social encyclical to contemporary situations in a way which is hugely important. But then you have things like the Pontifical Academy for Life, you know, having these conversations about effectively humana vitae and veritatis splendor. Could you have anticipated that in 2013? No. 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 I mean, I would not have anticipated that. So I think nobody appreciated the significance of what a change in the papacy would mean. And and I say that, I mean, I'm trying to stay in the realm of sort of the facts, but the facts are the way in which the church has understood humana vitae, its relationship to veritatis splendor and its relationship to objective morality is now up for a debate and discussion that I would not have anticipated. Do I trust that the Holy Spirit protects the church and that the outcome of that discussion, should that the outcome of that discussion be judged in a definitive magisterial way, which I'm required to believe or to hold, will be in accord with the truth? Yeah, I genuinely do trust that. I trust in the charisms of the church by virtue of the Holy Spirit. But did I anticipate, and do I think it's possible, I mean, do I think that it is possible that further discussion about humana vitae could indeed elucidate certain elements of Catholic moral teaching that need to be elucidated? Yes, I genuinely think that's a possibility. At the same time, I also recognize, like I look back on the history of theological debates in the life of the church, and I recognize that that may not be the outcome, right? That the consequence of this debate may not be something which is uh, which leads to additional sort of definitive magisterial clarity by which God has, through which God has been working, right? But the point is, I think, conceptually, like epistemologically, I could not have conceived of some of the challenges that the church would face. And at the same time, to flip to the other side of the coin, I failed to appreciate some of the challenges which the church was not addressing, which needed to be addressed, which by virtue of elements of the Holy Father's gov- the current Holy Father's governance of the life of the church have come to the fore. Pope Francis authorized the Archdiocese of New York's preliminary investigation and finding and publicization of the finding of McCarrick. And that opened up for us the opportunity for a recognition of a set of problems which required reform of the church's legal system and culture, which we are now engaged in, period. Pope Francis authorized the resignation of Cardinal Angelo Becciu from the College of Cardinals, which is and his right, indictment. Right. His what? 
What's that? His what? His resignation from the rights and privileges of uh-huh. the Cardinal. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay, fine. Pope Francis authorized Cardinal Bachu's resignation from the rights and privileges of a member of the College of Cardinals and uh, his indictment, which has led to a set of uh, a, 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 a trial, which presumably will lead to, could lead to, significant legal reform, either by Pope Francis or by his successor. So there are things in the life of the church which... I didn't know, like, I didn't know that we would have the debates that we're having now about Humana Vitae and all of these things, and the European cardinals would be saying these kinds of things, or the German Synodal Way, or any of these things. Of course, no, nobody knew that those things, and, you know, who knows how the Germans, if the German Synodal Way would have come to the fore in a Benedict, I mean, who, who could possibly sort of play what might have happened in history? But at the same time, I didn't appreciate the kinds of things which needed to be brought to the fore. At the resignation of Benedict, I believed that we had learned about clerical sexual abuse in 2002, that we had passed the charter, that the bishops had passed the charter, and therefore we had addressed the problem. And it's because Francis authorized the investigation into McCarrick that we know so much more about what's needed in the reform of the church. So it, it is a two-sided coin. There are things which are, are more in um, uh, flux, so to speak, which are more in question than I ever would have anticipated, and things which are further along towards... Um, the church living in accord with justice than I ever would have anticipated or that I even recognized that the church wasn't already living in accord with justice on these things. Hmm. I, um, when, when Benedict resigned, I, I was as shocked as everyone else, or at least as shocked as anyone else. And I didn't really understand it. And I took it kind of personally, um, which I wrote about earlier today. But I, I also didn't dispute what was the common interpretation at the time, which was that there were serious problems with curial corruption. That, you know, he'd received this hundreds of pages long report on lobbies, quote unquote, in, in the Vatican, that he had decided he was not up to the task of dealing with this, particularly because it allegedly involved his closest friend and collaborator, Cardinal Bertone. Um, and that he just viewed himself unequal to dealing with this. And so he resigned with the expectation that someone else, someone he understood and knew and preferred would come in and succeed him and, and sort of be the new broom that would sweep clean and everything. And I didn't, I didn't really question that narrative. Like you, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that we could enter into a, a much wider debate in the church about things that I thought, and I think, as you say, most people thought at the time of his resignation were, were well and truly settled and beyond the point of, of any kind of discussion. Something which has helped me come to terms with and, if not understand better, at least feel less aggrieved by the fact of Benedict's resignation has been his posture over the 10 years of his retirement as all of this has gone on, that I think, and I and I have written this previously, um, Benedict's resignation, while he might have had his own expectations and preferences about who would succeed him, he didn't lift a finger to bring that about, at least in any meaningful, practical way. He didn't pack the College of Cardinals with reliable electors. He didn't time his resignation to ensure that the sort of people who disagreed with him violently on matters of theology or ecclesiology or anything else. He actually followed the John Paul II model of sort of appointing to the College of Cardinals a broad diversity of ecclesiastical figures, some of whom agreed with him and some of whom did not. And, and, but also he timed his resignation to make sure that 
Some effectively of those got to participate in the conclave. The, the maximum yeah. number of right. his most virulent opponents on yeah. these things would participate in the conclave. Um, I mean, it's funny how how what counts as a liberal and a conservative in the church is such a ridiculously relative point of view. When we were when we were in St. Peter's Basilica for the Lying in State, the, one of the things I noticed, and I pointed this out to you, was Cardinal Velke was Cardinal Velke was there and was sort of in a row on his own praying in front of Benedict's body, and he was visibly upset. I mean, he was he was visibly distressed by this, and I had I had dinner with Cardinal Velke some years ago, and he told me the story of how he was informed that he was being made a cardinal, and he said, "Does the Pope know who I am? You know he." he must know what he's doing because this doesn't make any sense to me. And Cardinal Velke told me that, you know, at the time he was made a Cardinal, he considered himself to be a bleeding edge liberal and progressive. Like, you know, this, there must be some mistake. There's no way this Pope would elevate me to be a Cardinal that by the, the, by the sort of rude commentary at class, political reading of the church and ecclesiastical affairs, a guy like Benedict doesn't make a guy like Rainier Maria Wilkie a cardinal, but clearly Benedict saw saw deeper and wiser, and and knew who he was appointing. And you know, Cardinal Welke was there on Wednesday, as I said, looking visibly distressed at the, yeah. at praying at the side of the body of Pope Benedict. And and for me, something that has helped me not understand better, but have more faith in Benedict's decision to resign is exactly these kinds of extremely contentious, extremely concerning, extremely at times painful debates that have been going on in the life of the church since his resignation because Benedict had such clear faith that God, that the Holy Spirit will look after the church, that it was in the sort of apocryphal words of John the 23rd, you know, it's your church, God, not mine. That's right. That Benedict clearly did not believe it was his responsibility or even in his interest to try and say i know what is best for the future of the church immediate and distant and i will do whatever i need to do to make sure that that comes about that he felt free to say that i believe the lord is calling me to resign i'm going to resign and i've got my own ideas and my own preferences and my own expectations about what will come after me but you know what if i'm wrong about all of them and my eventual successor ends up abrogating my signature papal yeah. act of Samorum Pontificum, then that is what God is choosing to have happen in his church, and it's none of my affair. Choosing or permitting, right? I mean... Choosing or permitting, but it doesn't, in a sense, it doesn't matter. You know, whether God wishes it or God permits it, that neither one negates the action of God and con- the concern and love of God for his church. And the fact that Benedict experienced all of this with, I'm sure... As you know, we've heard Archbishop Ganswein make the, in my opinion, totally unnecessary public statement of, you know, traditionis custodis broke Benedict's hearts. Obviously, you don't, you know, you don't need to know Pope Benedict well to have guessed that, to have known that, surely. What is more interesting to me is that he didn't say anything about it. He didn't question the act of his successor. He didn't question the Pope. He took it in the spirit of obedience. Yeah. He took it in a spirit of trust, as he has taken everything that has happened since the moment of his resignation in a spirit of obedience and trust. And that, for me, is a very important witness. That, for me, is something which has helped me reconcile myself to my own admittedly somewhat bitter personal experience of his resignation in the first place. 
that this is a man who didn't just have the courage to resign, but he had the courage to live by the consequences of that decision and to live it with faith. And and I have found that to be, I'm not going to go overboard and say inspiring, but I have found that to be consoling. I have found it to be something that should inspire me. Yeah. Okay, let's talk for a little bit about the funeral. Okay. We're here in Rome to cover the funeral of Pope Benedict XVI, and we did. We also, at the same time, we were able to talk with a lot of people who were here to uh, to mourn. Um, we were at the same time able to um, go and um, we were admitted as members of the media to um, see Benedict XVI's body laying in state. But as we were sort of joking with a, a friend of ours in the media, we were um, we were grateful that we had a media pass which allowed us. Uh, we were if, undercover Catholics. We were undercover Catholics, right? We were there as members of the media. Such that we could pray in, in the presence of Benedict. To be clear, and let us be fair to but the. But we did a lot of mediating in there. We did a lot of mediating, but more importantly, to be fair to the Holy See um, press office, they said to us as we were going in, if anyone wishes to remain behind a little bit longer and for the pray, purposes of prayer, right. we will accommodate that. And, the, and they did, right? So yes. we went in and we were first. Let's just talk about this experience. So we were brought. We we got you and I got to Rome on um, Wednesday. Wednesday, thank you, and uh, we had arranged uh, they had the they were bringing in groups of of reporters and these media pools to go and in, into St. Peter's Basilica where people were lining up I, I'd say for the waits were where we were hearing consistently were an hour or under an hour so they weren't lining up for sort of hours but people were lining up to wait about an hour to be able to walk into the basilica walk the lines went to up the basilica Benedict XVI's body was lying in state on a kind of a litter, litter, right um, in uh, in front of the 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 large central altar in St. Peter's Basilica, which has the curvy Baldacchino. Baldacchino. Were you telling me what Baldacchino is? I was just trying to. Oh my gosh! Which has the curvy? You said the curvy, and you looked like yeah. you were about to say thing. No, I... because I was going to say pillars, which support the Baldacchino. The okay. curvy is no, actually not no, the Baldacchino. No, I'm but the Sorry, I was just trying to be helpful. Benedict XVI's body was laying in a litter. Uh, um, you didn't know the word for litter, so... I did know the word for litter. You just told it to me anyway. Benedict XVI's body was laying uh, upon a litter um, in front of the central altar of St. Peter's Basilica. People could wait in line first outside and then inside, and effectively not sort of kneel down and pray, but walk past the body of Benedict XVI, during which time they would say a prayer, and then would be on the other side of the basilica and sort of take their time leaving. But... We were allowed to go in to stand in a kind of holding area for a long time um, in which we watched people in that line and then to go forward and to stand first on one side of the basilica and then on another side of the basilica to both, I suppose, as a journalistic matter, observe those who were processing past the body of Benedict XVI and as a spiritual matter to pray uh, for the repose of There was of a fair bit of people so watching to be done. There was a fair bit of people watching to be done, which was indeed the, the task. And, uh, and well, the task was to, or at least the the permitted task was to people watch. You insisted on going. People somewhere. talking. I got in trouble. You insisted on people talking. You so what happened is you we kept taking, trying to get us thrown out. What happened is we, okay, we're taken into the basilica. This is what happened, guys. We're taken into the basilica, and first of all, they tell you, okay, so we had a we had a we had two appointments to go into the basilica. We had a two o'clock appointment and a three o'clock or four o'clock basilica. You have to kind of apply for these, and then you get these emails to say your request to be in the. Two o'clock media pool is proved. So we had applied to be in the two o'clock media pool and the four o'clock media pool because we that's the, kind of the way the website worked. And so we um, they tell us when you pick up your credentials, they say, okay, be there an hour before. Be at the press office an hour before. And the press office is just like a two-minute walk from the basilica. So we get to the press office an hour before, and then we waited 
exactly 55 minutes in front of the press office to be able to go into the basilica. And I, Ed can attest to this, was not, I do not like wasting time. I you do. have a very Anglo-Saxon mentality. I, there's stuff to be, I mean, like every minute in that we are in Rome is, our subscribers are paying for every minute that we're in Rome. And so it is my view that I owe them to be working every minute, like in order to be maximizing their investment effectively in PillarCatholic.com. And so I don't like just standing around for an hour. And I certainly don't like the idea. You should be here at this time such that you can participate in this activity. And, oh, okay. And and they kept coming out and saying, like, in a couple minutes, in a couple minutes, in a couple minutes. And then, you know, five minutes before the actual time, we walked over to the Basilica and got – we walked kind of back around behind the Basilica and then went in. And – um and then we were brought in and the line was on the other side and we were brought to what I can only describe as a pen between two of the supporting columns of the basilica. They had, with wooden barricades, created a pen for members of the media. We, they, we were escorted into the pen, which was empty, and there were kind of risers there so that you could climb up and take pictures of the people online. And you were only about halfway up, so you couldn't really even take pictures. So did pictures. you say online? In line, the people who were... No, you said online. No, the people who were online. That's what you say where I'm from. Yeah, no, I, that's why I was noticing it was a, it was a New Jersey... It is. That's how we say it. No, I know. I, I find it fascinating. I don't think it's okay. radically correct. People who are online, you could take pictures of them. And they put us in this pen, and there were risers so they could go up and kind of take a picture of Benedict XVI's body, but it was still really far up. And then they left to do other things. And we were in that pen for half an hour. Not yes, kidding. half an hour. We were in that pen for half an hour. And the, the only thing you could do in the pen was take a picture, but how many pictures can you take, right? So I saw all these people who were – and what I wanted to do, the main thing that I wanted to do – Journalistically, the main thing I wanted to do as a human being was to pray for the repose of the soul of Benedict XVI. But the main thing that I wanted to do journalistically was talk to people who had come to the basilica to find out why they'd come to the basilica and interview them and this. And and they had told you specifically you may not do I, that. I didn't hear that. I don't remember that. <laughs> That's because you chose not to listen. When did they say that? As they were walking us into the basilica, he turned around. The guy from the Vatican press office turned around and said, okay, we're going to the basilica now. He said this in three languages. Video journalists... Only when I install you on the video platform, that's all you can do. You no to camera, no interviews. If you are doing pictures, you can take pictures. That's fine. There are absolutely no interviews. There are absolutely no Why audio. Why during all this? I, you were sort of floating around, you know, chuntering to yourself into your beard about how we were late and <laughs> we'd had to wait. You didn't want to listen to this jumped up whoever from the Vatican press office who I wanted to get in there and get on with things. I don't remember having heard that at all. I'm not kidding. I don't remember having heard that at all. So I excused myself from the pen and I started talking with people who had interesting stories about why yes, they had come did. to see Benedict the Sixteenth. And they were very interesting they stories. Very and I'm interesting glad stories. you got. One them. of the things that was interesting is that I, it was very, almost difficult to find Americans. I wanted to find Americans and I didn't find them until much later in the day. And and many of the people who were there, I mean, this speaks to the sort of muted celebration of the whole thing. Many of the people who were there were people who had happened to be coming to Rome and then Benedict the Sixteenth died and this is what they did. But you know, we have talked to a few people who came to Rome for this, but that was less than I would have anticipated. Far less as a portion of the mourners than I would have anticipated. So I went and talked. And then when I excused myself from the pen, you told me, I didn't know this, I had made an effort to close the wooden barricade so that the pen was closed. But you told me that I left it slightly ajar. It was, it was not a sufficient effort that you had made. <laughs> so people started going into the pen who were not journalists or accredited as journalists. And no. I don't know what they were doing in there. I don't know why anyone... They were wandering around and wanted to know why we had this privileged position and vantage point. In there. Um, there was nothing to do. There was no journalism to be done in there. There was nothing to do. So You could have prayed. That's what some of us I did. I did. I did pray. I did pray. But then I went to do my job. But the Lord revealed to you a different plan. <laughs> I had a Mary or Martha work to do at that point. And so I went off and I was interviewing people. And then I found out that the pen filled up with um, 
Tourists. Tour- tour- mourners. Mourners, pilgrims. Some of them were tourists, some of them were mourners. Some of them were. And then I found out that because I had excused myself from the pen, other journalists did that too, which is no skin on my back. I, good, I'm glad for them to do their work. But that sent the press office people into a bit of a tizzy, and so they ended up sort of herding everyone back. And so this guy, who was sort of our guy, and sort of escorted me back. And I said, no, 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 I'm just doing my work. I'm just interviewing people and taking video. And I said, yes, all of the things I told you specifically you may not do. I didn't know about that. I didn't know about that. So then after that, in which he was unhappy, displeased, they brought us up to the front, and um, we were able to stand there for quite some time and to pray. And then I got in trouble again because I went to go interview this guy who was in a Franciscan habit, and I was sure that he was Cantal Mesa. And the guy told me that he wasn't Cantal Mesa, but I still think it might have been Cantal Mesa. And so I kind of got us in trouble again. And then when we were leaving, when it was finally time to leave, we had to stay in front for quite some time. And for me, it was a very meaningful spiritual experience to be able to pray in the presence of Benedict XVI. And I prayed for uh, people who had given me prayer requests and for our uh, listeners and for our subscribers and for my family and, and uh, for some other intentions and but I did pray for you if you're listening to this and then uh, we, when we walked out I tried to talk to the people on the line and I got tutted it again because apparently this is the main thing about the press office they're very glad to bring you places but God forbid you should want to do the work of talking to people while they're there which is to my view a big part of the journalism otherwise you're just right they expect you to do that on your own time I got in trouble the next day at the funeral for a similar kind yeah, of thing. Did you exactly the uh, same thing all go, over again. The journalists at the funeral, they put on top of the colonnade, which is a super cool view, very, very cool place to be, really awesome, actually, to be up on the top of the south colonnade. It's very, very cool. But there's no people up there, and the people who came to the funeral are the story, right? I mean, I want to find out why do people come to the funeral. So I went down, and I tried to go into the places where people were sitting and find out why priests had come to celebrate, why people had come to the funeral. I wanted to find out if people had traveled from far. So while holy priests were trying to prepare themselves for the celebration of the sacraments, they were being badgered by you who wanted to ask them a whole lot of impertinent questions. candy or whatnot. And, uh, and so, but that same guy, that same guy, my press office pal, you know, tutted me again. And I said, no, I just want to do my work, journalista, you know, blah, blah, blah. I just want to do my work. And he said, you should have done that before. And I said, what before? As soon as we got here, you put us up on top of the roof so we can talk to anyone. And he actually, I think he liked me because he gave me a big hearty handshake at the end of the thing. And I said, I know you have a hard job to put up with us. And, and that was fine. But Yes. And the last words he said, you can leave now. <laughs> Which I, I, I was trying very hard not to interpret as an imperative. Edward, we could talk a lot more about Pope Benedict XVI, and I suspect we will in the coming weeks. But we actually have to leave now because we're in Italy where the Epiphany is a holy day of obligation. And today is that day. And so we are going to go to Mass. Listeners, we do indeed have to go to Mass. Honestly, this episode of the Pillar Podcast in Rome for us is brought to us by you. If you subscribe to the show, effectively, you allowed us to come to, to here and to cover the thing. And we wish that you were here. I, honestly, we wish that you were here with us. Maybe we could do a thing where we come to Rome with subscribers to the Pillar Podcast. I think that'd be awesome. But honestly, I'm not trying to be um, to turn this into a commercial, but the, I have been reminded to be grateful for the people who make our work happen while we're here. So oh, thank very you much. I, I was I, I was having, as you, as you asked me about, and as I wrote about today, a mood yesterday at the... Um, at the funeral of Pope Benedict, and and part of my ruminations during all of that was not just the sensibility that it was Benedict the Sixteenth who was the proximate and remote cause of my presence in Rome, but also the immediate cause of my presence in Rome is the people who make our thing go and grow. Mm-hmm. And I am I am deeply deeply grateful for that. That's right. So be assured of our prayers from Rome which will continue when we go to Mass, which is starting basically now. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Editing 2D Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, Dane D. Flynn, joined by my Pillar co-founder and co-editor, Ed Condon, who is going to get the last word in this episode. Ed, what say you? God is loved.
Amen. We'll be back next week.